our first ever podcast. We're excited to have George Smith, digital strategist and managing director for 20 years. Uh, George joins us from Dubai. Welcome, George. Hi, Dave. Please be here. How you doing? Thanks for joining us on our first ever podcast. We've got my co-host for this series of Planet Reset, which is Andrew Etherton, CEO of P3MO. Hi, guys. Nice to meet you. Hi, George. Andrew. Of course, we're all doing this on uh, on, on video um, for the whole COVID reasons, but um, looking forward to the conversation. And, and again, thanks thanks for your time, George. So I guess, you know, um, you're super experienced digital strategist working with big brands, um, you know, building and their whole digital models and strategies um, throughout in, in Dubai and, and the Middle East um, and India. What kind of, I guess, you know, you've been out there now for a couple of years. Um, I guess, what, what, what have you been doing? What are we doing? Uh, I, um, so, the sort of the common thread running throughout all of my career, I suppose, is, um, uh, as you well know, Dave, you know, working with organisations who are looking to go through transformation, who have, you know, organisations for whom they've built up their entire success record in an industrial economy where they found their competitive advantage through production, through the means of production. You know, there were those two philosophers that defined the Industrial Revolution, Karl Marx and Adam Smith. And you know, one said it was good and one said it was bad, but they fundamentally said the same thing, which is if you want to make money in an industrial economy, you own the means of production. You get a big old factory, you pile lots of people in, you divide labor, and, and you, you own the means of production. And what we see is that whole, uh, that whole economy breaking down over the last couple mm-hmm. of decades, where now competitive advantage is no longer to be found just in the way you produce things, the way you mass produce and shrink wrap and, and, and where you build factories. But actually, it's all now increasingly to be found in consumption, often people, what they want, when they want, across time, across channel, across device. And so we have this saying, and indeed we've got our own podcast called CX for CA. We talk a lot about CX for CA as a, as a question, which is customer experience for competitive advantage. What does that mean? That just literally means exactly that, is that the new forms of competitive advantage for all businesses and all industries, and indeed in the public sector, are increasingly to be found in customer experience. The way you orchestrate a customer experience. And what's really difficult that, from that from the business side is, okay, so you've got these guys who are CEO, they're on the board, whatever the industry is, and they've made their whole career a series of no doubt incredibly successful reforms but all adapted to an industrial economy stuff like business process re-engineering stuff like outsourcing and stuff mm-hmm. like supply chain and stuff like um you know all the kind of internal lean manufacturing yeah that is all with how do you produce something whereas all of the things that are going to take their business forward are much harder for them to conceptually grasp and that mm-hmm. is essentially around customer experience and by definition the people least able to see a business the way a customer sees it are the people yeah. who work in that business, right? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. it's outside in inside out. So the kind of the long way of saying it is, you know, what I do is work with businesses like that. That's obviously how we first met Dave, you know, many years ago. And yep. so trying to get them to help, help them understand, to start the customer, work backwards, and what that actually means in terms of real digital transformation. And, you know, to your point, there's a, there was a philosopher called uh, Kierkegaard. He used to say that you, you can't expect to get a, a good crop from the same field every year. You know, you've got to, you've got to change it up. Yeah. And I kind of feel like that in terms of, uh, in terms of the, 
not just the actual the companies, but in terms of, you know, every four or five years I switch locations. So I've lived in the Middle East three times, both in the UAE, Saudi Arabia, I lived in Malaysia for a while, a few years in Australia, obviously I lived quite a lot in, in, um, in the UK and Europe. And I just find that actually the, you've got to, if, you, if you're advising companies, you've got to see so many different types of um, companies doing it different ways. And, I, and the thing that I'm fascinated with at the moment, the thing I get, I suppose my boss pays me for, is really to actually work with organizations in emerging economies. So to actually say, you know, a lot of the organizations we work with here, it, if, you, if you look on the internet for content about digital transformation, you see reams yeah. of case studies and statistics, and they'll say things like, you know, 70% of people will pay more for an excellent customer experience. And, and that's true, but actually, when you look at the fine print, what it says is in America. We you know, <laughs> 10,000 people in Europe. Well, that's all great. Yeah. By definition, we know that culture makes a difference. We know that businesses are different in, you know, in America to, to the Middle East, to India, to um, Singapore. Every place has its own nuance. And there's not a lot of focus, really, on those organizations in these emerging economies. How do you do transformation? What does transformation really mean? And what do customers really want in in, in different economies? Um, and I think that so you know that's what really pays my time. And as I say, I hop from country to country on some sort of crazy adventure, mostly escaping the law as well. Um, and uh, you know, and right, that's what sense of it. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, it's really interesting. I think you know certainly want to cover a little bit later on um, around, it'd be good to really understand a bit more around, um, you know, since you've been in Dubai and, and, and how you see the difference in the roles that you've had in the UK and also, you know, what you're seeing in Dubai from emerging technologies or, or approach to digital transformation. But um, so I guess your, your part of your role is, is building the growth of horizontal and, 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 and you know, and, and the focus for the next sort of 12 months is, what what's your what is your focus? I guess in, in, in building horizontal out in, uh, in 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 the Middle East. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, what I thought was going to be the focus at, in January is not what it is. I mean, to 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 relate to a more base principle, which is, you know, why does my company horizontal? want to set up here and what and are interested in emerging economies they're originally a u.s company actually and being very successful right. in the US, and they skipped over um all the sort of you know uh, europe and the more mature economies because actually those are saturated areas really if I was to be honest with you. and what they're interested in for the reasons i've, I've sort of uh, laid out is more kind of how do we expand into emerging economies how do we come into areas where actually then it's not saturated with a lot of competitors but in fact they are incredibly growth economies, but they need something different. So often the way we engage here um, is, is, very, is fundamentally different to the way it will happen elsewhere. And we are particularly uniquely set up to do that. But I mean, the kind of, I suppose the one sentence on horizontal is that, you know, we work with, um, with large brands um, who are looking to do digital transformation and specific to two platforms we work on. So we work on two platforms, one called Cycle, one called Salesforce. And, you know, we help organizations realize digital transformation through those platforms and to re-engineer their customer experience from strategy to creative to user experience to development, infrastructure, everything. And, and the reason we only concentrate on two platforms isn't just another view that we have, which is, so if you're, a, if you're a consultancy or a digital agency, you want to be a meaningful, specific, not a wandering generality, right? 
You don't want to be someone who's just a bit like, yeah, yeah, we'll have a go at everything. Yeah, we'll do this, we'll do that. We don't really know anything at any particular depth. You know, you know, if you want to work on another great platform like um, Adobe, a great platform, but we can't help you with that. If you want to do Sitecore and Salesforce, you want to, if those are your chosen platforms for transformation, then we're the best in the world at doing that. And so it's that kind of specific, deep knowledge, you know, into a market where there's that need, working with a big brand, um, and, specific, and, you know, in my role in particular, specific to emerging economies. Excellent. That's great. That's great. Um, I guess from a, you know, um, Andrew, do you want to pick up this next section and then we'll kind of cut that yeah. bit? Yeah, yeah. No, and you, you sort of touched on it, George, you know, when you talk about kind of what your plan was in January versus what it is now and, and where, where we see ourselves, uh, COVID-19, global pandemic, um, change is about to change if, if we want to use the, the, the buzzwords. But I guess what's your perspective on it? You know, here in the UK, we've had a lockdown. We're seeing a lot of businesses, um, some of which um, you would never thought would go to, for example, remote working. Very, very archaic, very old school, and you, you just couldn't see it, you know, if you took the UK manufacturing industry, for, for example. But out in the Middle East, have you seen any interest? I mean, how are businesses approaching COVID, global pandemic? Um, and hence the name of the, 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 the sort of podcast series, really Planet Reset, but do you think it could be as far as, you know, businesses having to essentially reset full stop, uh, you know, thanks to, thanks to COVID-19 really? Yeah. So I draw a couple of distinctions. Um, Warren Buffett has this great line um, that he, he talked about the, during the global financial crisis 10 years ago. He said, um, you only see who's been swimming naked uh, when the tide goes out. Right. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Fundamentally, when the, you know, business doesn't know what the next crisis is going to be, but they kind of know it's coming, right? And, you know, the great paradox, I think, of many businesses is that, is that you know, they didn't know 12, 13 years ago whatever it was that actually it was going to be sort of subprime and CDOs. And no one saw, you know, no one realistically saw coronavirus happening in 2020. Actually, what it is doesn't matter. The cases are you set for it, right? And I, what I see are businesses who are able to, uh, who have prepared well, and businesses who haven't prepared well. And I think, you know, in the short term, what you see is, is certainly a lot of agility amongst companies. So um, I was speaking to this guy who runs um, customer experience and transformation for Nissan across the Middle East and Asia Pacific and indeed Africa. Um, and he was talking about how literally in the course of like a couple of days, they had to reimagine their entire customer experience. I think there's a lot of this going on. And the analogy I have in my brain, I don't know if you've seen like the film Apollo 13, where, you know, that yeah, guy yeah. gets all those kind of, you know, bits they have in the aircraft, you know, like socks and such like, and they're like, right, move, 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 and this is Brussels sprouts growing. So, and it's kind of like that. I think a lot of businesses are like, right, okay, well, we now need to think the unimaginable. We cannot have face-to-face -face contact. We cannot have, you know, manual wet signatures. We cannot, you know, and how are we set up? Both, you know, the, the, the economy as a whole from a legal yeah. standpoint, but also how can we begin to orchestrate a different customer experience? You know, even if we're sort of you know, doing a lot of manual stuff in the background, how do we actually 
how do we continue to sell? And I think that this will be in the long term quite a change for a lot of businesses and their sort of their their assessment of risk and investment in terms of you know how important is it now to actually have a way to digitally orchestrate your customer experience, e-commerce, etc. But um, so I think in the short term there's lots of um, scrambling around. I think what we'll also yeah. see is um, there's lots of I think we should draw a distinction um, between those who are in businesses that were where this is the tipping point to inevitable change and those who are in industries that this is just a minor blip. So, you know, for example, our industry, we are, it's absolutely affected us, but, you know, we focus on digital and transformation um, and that feels like a growing industry. Um, and so we just yeah. think the external factor that's come in, well set, you know, we don't have any debt, so we're not over leveraged, we, you know, we're going to be fine. And we're not looking at it as a way to fundamentally change a business. But if you're running like a print factory, um, you yeah. know, you might say, well, look, we knew this day was coming. We, you know, we haven't prepared for it, but yeah. we know it's coming. And this is now the reason that we are going to, not by any means an excuse, but this is just happens to be the, 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 the straw that breaks the camel's back. And we need to take this opportunity to reset the company. Um, and yes, um, and so you'll see lots of businesses, um, you know, airlines, for example, that, that, probably we're going to fundamentally change anyway knew they needed to do it yeah and now they just have to do it and i think that the opportunity is to then say okay well how do you do it? because coming all the way back to my first point is you've got a lot of no one's willfully blind anymore there's no ceo saying oh you know we don't see a problem it's just like what do you do like what are the practical steps how do you move beyond a buzzword and how do you actually deliver transformation you know and Speaking frankly, and you know, my point of view is that the idea of just getting some highly paid consultants in to you know, spend two years coming up with a PowerPoint presentation is probably not going not to cut it. And I think people have seen enough of that and they're looking for a different type of, of engagement in order to, to deliver real transformation, lasting transformation. And, and really what, what fundamentally you're looking for, and this is to extend the analogy poorly around Corona, but you're looking for, if you're going to bring in external people, you're looking for a virus to infect the host, right? You're looking for change from within. Right? You're yeah, yeah. yeah. Look for someone who can. I like the analogy. <laughs> That's a good analogy. But you're looking for someone who can actually change the organization. You know, you need to optimize around the new technology, not, not, not just fit it to existing processes. It's change, and change is really difficult, and it takes time. But that doesn't mean it doesn't need to happen, right? So, you know, it's around how do you how do you tackle that? So I think that um, you know, we will see a new business model emerging, not because of corona, but actually this yeah. is just yeah. what forces people's hands. So you can no longer ignore it and just, you know, focus on the progressive dividend or something. You know, if you live in a if you're in a dying industry, then now's the time to, to revive some life into your business model. And so I think we still love that. And I'm actually think that we'll come out of this phase maybe Q4, maybe 2021, with a renewed impetus on, on genuine transformation, but probably a, a view that this is a different set of people who are looking for transformation. So if you follow any kind of you know, product development curve, then you see a bunch of sort of innovators and early adopters who take on the, take on the mantle of transformation. I think we've absolutely gone through them. We've got the majority of businesses we now need to take it seriously. And they are fundamentally different type of purchases, fundamentally different types of organizations, and they even will probably get eventually into the laggards and the more sort of conservative organisations mm -hmm. that change and transformation very different. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see a lot. And you know, and also, you know, to put a point, I think there's a lot of short-term things. So, you know, we'll see businesses for the first time having to think about, you know, how do we do remote working? 
And once you've crossed that Rubicon, it's like, well, actually, do we need these expensive buildings in London or Manchester? Shouldn't people work from home? What does mm. that mean? Actually, then do we need yeah. full-time employees? What does that mean for gig economy? Do we bring in people? Also, you'll see lots of changes like, um, you know, we get a lot of it here in Dubai where you get lots of foreign direct investment and people sort of stretching out and sort of set up business. Well, what is it? If you're, if you're currently over-leveraged up and sort of, you know, all your manufacturing coming out of Wuhan in China or something, well, you've just found... Mm why you don't want a single point of failure in your, your, your supply chain. So there'll be lots of that movement around. And so, you know, I think there'll be lots of, in, you know, cash, you know, cash withdrawals have gone through the floor. Well, what does that mean? People are more, more comfortable with e-commerce because actually now they're already having to do it. So that, what does that mean for consumer behavior? And I mean, there's just so many PhDs to be written about this thing. It's going to be fascinating. You, know. <laughs> you couldn't answer it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, th- I think it, it, it's really interesting, actually, because if I take it from the UK perspective and you talk about the sort of knocking on effect, George, on, you know, uh, as a result of people working from home, what does that mean for commercial property? How would offices and, and, and teams then interact? Um and it, and it almost poses, if you think of um, sort of business transformation or digital transformation, I, I think and coming from myself, a sort of strong background in Lean and Six Sigma, it was all about the Toyota way. You talk about lean manufacturing earlier on. Um, I think it will be sort of really interesting to say, well, how do you transform a business when everyone's remote? How do you stay connected? How do you communicate? How do you collaborate? Um, I mean, you're you're very much a strategist yourself, but do you have a view on that? You know, certain industries might be, you know, talk about early adopters and lag arts and manufacturing traditionally has been, as much as lean manufacturing was at the forefront, in terms of the back office has kind of historically been quite sort of inefficient, hasn't it? Um, Whereas I, I, I think what would that look like for the gig economy, as you touched on earlier. Where do you see it going in terms of trends? Do you think there'll be industries leading? I mean, take technology sector aside uh, as an obvious one. Um, what what sort of trends do you think we'll see now in, in the context of digital transformation and, and having to really drive change sort of from within, as you say? Look, I think that um, you're, you're right in the sense of businesses needing to reorganize and change in order to deliver customer experience being able to do that remotely being able to do that in, in, in different ways to when the whole business was actually built and focused around the efficient production process but i don't think you know i don't think that's like a, a, a covid thing i think that's just something that's been in fact decades now so let me give you a great statistic and i think it's a great statistic not enough people talk about so whenever you um whenever you look at a balance sheet there's basically two types of assets, right? There's intangible assets and there's tangible assets, right? So tangible assets are stuff like this pen or a factory or an office. There's stuff like cash. There's, they're, they're, they're things you can touch, right? Intangible assets um, are things you can't touch. And the two and two of the most predominant intangible assets on the, on the balance sheet are software, so not hardware, but software and brand, right? 
And it includes other stuff too, like for training, for example. But fundamentally, those are the two big intangible assets in a balance sheet. So what I would argue is that it's the best way of quantifying a proxy for customer experience, right? So, you know, intangible assets, um, you know, uh, are a good sign, a good correlation with um, customer experience. In 1976, if you looked at the um, S&P 500, so the largest 500 companies in America, um, the, in, the intangible assets on those balance sheets, i.e. the worth of those companies in intangible assets was 16%. Yeah? What's that today? Here's a little quiz for you. What is it today? Because if we think customer experience is important, and if we think that mm. the business is changing, because you're saying, Andrew, it's no longer important about sort of, you know, offices and infrastructure, it's actually much more, you know, actually about people and about brand and about you know, software, that number should have gone up. Customer, the importance of customer experience should go up. The, 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 wor the worth of it should have gone up. Mm, yeah. If it was 16, 1, 6% in 1976, what is it today? No Googling, Dave, I can see you on Googling. Yeah, yeah, we have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> Just think about it logically. It can't be 100%, right? Because tangible yeah. assets still have value. You know, if you own in a factory, you could still buy that company, sell off the factory and get money. For it. So it can't be 100%. You know, yeah. if you were to say, for example, 50%, you would be saying that the value of that company is as much, is now you know, incredibly as much, you know, intangible as it is tangible. Something yeah. that just yeah. Really yeah. 50, what, what do you think? Give me, give me, give me 20%. 20%. I'll, I'll say, I'll say 27. <laughs> so, so I'm going to, I'm going to say, you can, you can, you can now Google this if you don't believe me or Google it after the podcast. The current, <laughs> in the S&P 500, 500 biggest companies in America, the, the, the wealth, the on the balance sheets, um, the value of the company, an intangible asset, is now 90%. So what does that mean to you? That means that you know, in 1976, if you wanted to copy someone else's business, you could copy 84% of it with just cash. Right? You buy a factory yeah. like your competitor's factory, you buy people, you know, you get people look like yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. Now, you can only buy 10% of your competitors' uh, company because the rest of it is the culture and the software. Experience. And the yeah. You know, yeah. the new competitive advantage. You know, the thing that you really collect in on your customers through customer experience is, is the data. You know, where, when do people purchase? Why do they purchase? What are their tells? Yeah. These are things which can no longer be bought with just straight out cash. And they're no longer tangible investments which can be stripped out. So, you know, Yes, you're right, Andrew, in the sense of companies need to reform and reshape and change to a more sort of fluid structure. But mm. that's just kind of a, this is just a kind of a, a wake up call for many businesses that will force them to, to adopt practices. So things like the gig economy, you know, the breakdown of, of what was actually quite an anomaly in world economics. I mean, you know, if you trace back economics, you know, pre-industrial revolution, everyone mm. would sort of, you know, most people were sort of sole traders, they were blacksmiths, they were specialists, they were artisans. There was this kind of weird anomaly where everyone said, I know, corporations, they're a thing, and as I say, means of production, industrial revolution. And now we're moving back to a situation which is, you know, people don't go to work for a company, work in the same factory or dockyard 45 mm -hmm. years and then finish. People yeah, are now responsible for their own career. So I think that 
he's hitting the wider trends. You know, again, it's, it's actually evenly proportional if you look at sort of, you know, America, Europe, you know, Asia, etc. These, these trends mm. are different. But the fundamental trajectory of these trends all look pretty much the same, although they all have cultural nuance. So, yes, businesses need to deal with this. But that's not because COVID's come along and we all need to embrace, you know, whether it's Skype or Zoom or Teams, right? I mean, this is about saying, yeah. how, what does modern business look like? How do you find competitive advantage through, through customer experience rather than production process? And, and some businesses just haven't, to be fair to them, been doing enough work on that in, in recent years, recent yeah. decades. And so now they've got to catch up. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's just the way it is. Yeah. No, Dave, you're, you're, oh. you're off you go. Yeah. The problem with video on, on Zoom is that you can't actually read who's going who's gonna to talk. <laughs> I guess getting too George, excited. Yeah. Too excited. Just, it's, it's a really good analogy. Sorry? You should put your hand up, like being back. Me, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you want to sort of scratch your nose on next to go. So. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I think it's a really good analogy of the, the tangible and non-tangible assets, and I guess data being the key, you know, intelligent transformation, that next level of, you know, transformation that, you know, um, and, and I guess, what, what's your thoughts on that? Look, um, there's no there's no one size fits all, right? So, um, you know, people talk about technologies, they, and, and, and there's like the Gartner hype cycle, right? There's, yeah. You know, blockchain, there's internet of things, there's, you know, big data, there's, you know, choose your, you know, fad de jour, right? And all of these things are real, although there's a froth and a bug unnecessarily around many of them. But the biggest problem I find with, um, with, with picking winning, winning technology or, or, you know, cure-all solutions um, is that the fundamental problem a lot of businesses make when they engage in transformation is they... They fall in love with a solution and not the problem, right? They fall in love yeah. with, um, you know, saying, you know, I've got this idea, it's blockchain, and I'm going to kind of find a way to build my company around it. And blockchain is incredibly powerful. I mean, you know, some people would argue it could be as big as the internet, as in sort of, you know, mm -hmm. you know, versus, you know blockchain. but I mean, and that's all, that will fundamentally be true. But what you need to fundamentally concentrate on is the problem. What's the problem you're trying to solve? Because the, the user need, the human problem, doesn't always change that much, but how you can solve them changes, right? I mean, you know, people still want, you know, to watch movies. It's just that, you know, but, and, but you know, Netflix is now a better solution than Blockbusters, right? You know, I, I prefer yeah, yeah, to yeah. rather than, or Spotify rather than go down HMV. And that's why those old business models, those solutions die, but the, but the fundamental need is still the same, right? You, yeah. And yeah. I think that, that, is, that is the mistake of businesses, is that um, there's a great story from years ago that I used to tell about um, uh, Polaroid. Uh, you, 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 Dave, you're very old, you remember Polaroid? Sadly, I'm old enough. I've got enough grey hairs, but Dave's got a few years on me. But <laughs> Polaroid, for, the, for the younger in the audience, was like, um, it's like an instant camera, right? Or instant by those days. We would like print out in real time, like a, a photo, like a thick white bar. Where you'd hold it, and you'd, you'd sort of yeah. you know, get to give yeah. it air. So in the year, this is going back some years now, like a decade or so. In the year that um, Instagram 
sold to um, to Facebook. Um, mm, I remember that. Yeah. And they had like I can't remember what it was like you know, ten employees or something like that. And in that same year, Polaroid went bust. Right? And you know, Polaroid all of the advantages and you know what was it that you, know, you could argue was the difference, right? And, yeah. And and the, the great irony of it is that the year that Instagram was bought, and Instagram effectively, at least at the time, really just overlaid a filter on a, on a digital image and you shared it. Mm, mm. What do you think the most popular filter that people were using on their digital images? <laughs> the Polaroid. Polaroid. <laughs> <laughs> what does that tell you, right? That tells you that actually there was incredible nostalgia in this brand. Right? There was incredible, you know, uh, a lot of equity still left in that brand. People love that brand. And it, because Polaroid mm. was the Instagram of the, the 90s, mm -hmm. or the 80s, right? it was like it was taking photos of your friends, sharing them instantly. It was like great. But what what Polaroid, yeah. like countless other companies did, is they fell in love with the, the solution. They fell in love with the Polaroid camera. The idea, yeah. was, the need was still the same. We want to take yeah, photos yeah. instantly. We want to share them easily. We want to, you know, um, to, 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 to capture memories, right? It's not, we don't want to develop celluloid. That's not the human need. That's not the customer need, right? We want to share our memories. And if you can find me a better way to do that, then we'll do that, right? And, and this is the problem that the business, you know, there's still a need, for, there's not a need for financial services. No one wants a bank. What they want is a trusted place where they can put their money and money. Mm -hmm. yeah. So all these new businesses yeah. come along. The problems are still often the fundamental user needs are often the same. And that's why people say, look, start with the user needs and work backwards. Don't come in with a technology and try and back it into a user need. And yeah. so you know, I don't care when, like, whether the, the, the technology is you know, 20 years old, 100 years old, or, 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 or you know, yesterday. And it doesn't matter if there's not technology, right? Fundamentally, what is the problem you're trying to solve for? And fall in love with that problem, not the solution. And I think if you do that, then you know a lot of businesses are going to are going to be all right and they're going to be fine and you know and, and you know the other thing I'd say um, just while I'm on a long and uninteresting ramble is that, that <laughs> <laughs> and I think you know, this chance with I think you guys and what, a lot of what we're trying to do is you know you don't need to you don't need there needs to be three sort of sections of every project right there needs to be a strategy phase an implementation phase and then a sort of support phase and mm -hmm. basically if you're the physicist amongst you, it's like, it's like the assumption of entry. It's like if you, if you wanted a new air conditioning unit, you need someone to come in and go and scratch their chin and say, oh, I think you need one of these. And then someone implements it, and then you just kind of patch it up until you have to replace it again. I just think that's fundamentally the wrong metaphor for what I'm doing in the You don't want to, with a great respect to someone like McKinsey, the iconic, a great company, but you don't want someone like that coming in and saying, okay, well, let's spend two years in our strategy phase. And, Draw your Venn diagram. Yeah, everything perfect. <laughs> bringing someone to implement it. The implementation is as much a learning process, in fact, much more so than any kind of initial strategy discovery phase. You know, it's like saying, um, "I'm not going to," you know, saying, "I'm not going to start building and testing and learning with my customers and releasing things." You know, it, until I know the answer to everything, it's like saying, "I'm not going to get into the water until I know how to swim." Right? It's just ridiculous, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We are trying to satisfy customer, customer, please customers. The only way we can do that is by experimenting with customers, right? You need to build yourself a marketing laboratory, which is the type of thing we do here at Horizontal. Right? We build marketing laboratories on platforms like Salesforce, and we say, okay, well, 
let's figure out how we can test and learn ex experiments safely with customers so we can get all that data about what they know and what they like and what they want. And that then becomes the intangible asset, which is our competitive advantage. And I think that, you know, so you see too often businesses crippled by the complexity of, of, of the final solution. Well, they shouldn't be. Understand the fundamental human need, take a hypothesis-driven approach and start to, to learn. And I think that, you know, as far as I've understood the sort of the P3MO sort of um, proposition, I think it, it speaks to you know, missing piece in that jigsaw, which is the kind of need for someone to come along as a kind of independent arbiter and auditor of that type of transformation. Are you getting someone coming in and just talking to you? Not that interesting. Doing PowerPoints, <laughs> not really that revealing. Or are you getting someone coming and actually helping you be the virus that infects the host, helping with genuine transformation and change? And yep. for those CEOs who are struggling to really, really be able to do that kind of um, auditing themselves, I think you know someone like yourselves would be would be a great addition to that team and the the, the platform and such like you've got. So yeah, I think it's you know there's there's lots of people making lots of fundamental mistakes, but broadly fall in love with the problem, not the solution, and yep. you know, ask for test, learn, evolve, emerge, you know, feedback loops. Simple as that. Oh, that's really good. That's really good. And um, I think what, what's the, I guess your message for a CEO or a transformation director then is, you know, is really analyze that problem, understand that problem. Don't go flying off, um, you know, and, 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 you know, find the latest, you know, kind of structure around blockchain or whatever that is, but actually really understand that problem. Uh, what this, the problem you're trying to solve is, is really the message you're saying. Yeah, so a, a great example of a, a brand that I think has done remarkably well in the UK. My previous uh, when I was back in the back in the UK, we worked a lot with um, Gov.uk, and it's a crazy world where government is teaching private sector how to do it, right? But if I was to oversimplify the kind of the the story that many people in government would, would tell, and the kind of that their kind of um, if you like COVID moment, their kind of tipping point was actually there was just so many failed IT projects you know, back in the day doing IT projects. And the, 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 the iconic one was a NHS project where, from memory, back in early 2000s, they spent £12 billion on a new NHS system. I don't remember. Yeah, 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 I remember that. Capital, right? And they got like a bunch of people in and they did everything. Right. They, they, they spent like years developing this sort of solution that was kind of this Frankenstein's monster and they didn't go live and they didn't test anything and focus on these needs. Of course, they scrapped it. And what was really interesting, speaking to some of the people, and I won't name any names, but speaking to some of the people who were in government at that time, they said, look, we knew, we knew when we'd spent like three or four billion on this, everyone knew it was going to be paid. But, yeah. but, but there was never a meeting where, some, where people were asked to raise their hands and say, um, does anyone think this is going to fail? Should we carry on with this? What are we learning? It was a, you know, X number of year project that was just monotonously, you know, sort of continued. Yeah. And government intervention, I think from memory, it was the 2000 election, a new government came in and said, uh, this doesn't work. And, you know, you, which is crazy, right? Of course, you know, there should be feedback, should be learning. And to force the government to really look at you know, what IT projects and digital projects, and they look at it in a fundamental mm -hmm. way. And so they developed a great resource, both a great product in gov.uk, um, which is an incredibly simple and informative uh, website, a single place to sort of um, 
to, to get the information you need and to interact digitally with, with, with the government, which is great. But they also developed a um, methodology, um, which sort of a delivery methodology, um, broadly defined by Discovery Africa Live, which go into um, an mm. GDS sort of uh, set of rules and sort of heuristics around that, which really showed a process, and it's all open source because it's government, it's all taxpayers' money. Um, to actually say this is how you deliver change in an emergent way, and I think that it's I find it really interesting that it's all out there, it's all free, and, and actually it's I think it's proven to work. And the fundamental principle is, you know, it, as we said, you know, in that first discovery phase, you're essentially saying, you know, is there a user need? Put that user yeah. Then you're saying, mm-hmm. sort of alpha phase, can we solve this user need? And then beta, you're sort of building out and sort of you know you're sort of you know then running with it mm. continuously as sort of an ongoing system and there's a lot more in depth in that but to me something like that is is um is amazing i wrote a book actually funny enough a really really bad book um and um, <laughs> did, did, did it hit the amazon list george yeah, yeah. Don't, don't, don't name any names yeah so I, I bought it, but i don't even think my mum bought it so that's how bad it was but uh, it was um it was on <laughs> So this idea of like government as a platform, the idea that you know, government was so fundamentally been shaped in, in the UK but all over the world, so fundamentally shaped the industrial revolution, and government became like a factory, right? You know, you put taxes in and magic happens internally at this black box and services come out delivered. And, and that kind of, you had the things like the North Country Value Reforms of sort of 19th century, you know, fundamentally reshaped civil service. But of course, what I would argue is that the new models and ways of doing things in a digital economy rather than industrial economy are inevitably going to have wide consequences on how governments deliver services. Right? And so I tried to talk about this whole thing called, you know, that actually the, the future model of the government was an open source platform. Now, it turns out I was probably obviously wrong, but the, the general principle of the same is that this idea that, um, you know, government should be this kind of all-knowing, secretive place where you just put your taxes in and trust government, rather than a platform through which we can actually all, you know, achieve achieve the functional needs we want. Mm. We need services. We need this. We need this. We also want to co-create those services, right? And we want them joined up. And Mm. you know, this is to me the future of government. And I think that it's remarkable that we've got a situation now where government are really, I think. They, they bit the bullet in the same way many businesses are going to have to buy it through COVID. And they said, okay, we're going to do it. We're going to change. And they did. And, they yeah. did. and not with that incident, but the transformation in the last decade in the UK government, well, I think I generally think they'll be writing about it in history books. I think it's, I think it's important to do. Yeah. I, th- I think what's quite interesting, actually, just in the same theme, George, is if you look at, you know, you touched on blockchain technology and, and the government, which kind of traditionally has been very archaic, and there was always this, wasn't there, kind of public-private sector, private sectors leading the way, public's following. But, you know, even in the last couple of years, um, things like, uh, you know, the UK being front and centre of, uh, you know, party to the European blockchain partnership, um, it, it, it just shows kind of where government's going. And I think what will be quite interesting is if you look at, you know, COVID and what that's mean, and the government on a personal front feel really as much as there's criticism around it, um, have bit the bullet. They have kind of stood at the post and and, and taken a kind of lead on it. 
Um, uh, even though governments across the world are, are, are certainly challenging and doing diff, diff, different things. But I think it'll be interesting if you look at, um, without making it sound like an apocalypse, but sort of post-COVID, um, where would the government be? Because I think, to your point, the last decade, there has been a, a kind of seismic shift, if you want to call it. But even in the last couple of years, that's moved on again. And I couldn't believe it when I heard the government looking at blockchain technology you know, I think it was 2017, 2018, European Blockchain Champion, uh, you know, partnership signed, UK leading the way. You sort of go off fantastic. But now, global pandemic, potential planet reset, hence why we're doing the podcast, of course. But um, but government certainly seems to be standing by it, don't they? So it, if anything, it, I think it might just accelerate or I hope it'll, it'll accelerate um, and, and kind of change the government maybe into an enabler you know, that whole black box taxis in process services mm. out. That, that kind of leads me on to, um, I guess, a, a kind of sort of sort of last part of, of the podcast, really, where we've got sort of three questions for you, George. And, and I guess you kind of answered a little bit on that one. I guess what, you know, what, what companies have impressed you, I guess, pushing the boundaries of digital transformation? It sounds like the government is um, a tick there, but is there any other... Uh, kind of non-obvious ones that you think ah, actually have impressed me. So whether they're non-obvious, but certainly I think I think the government is you know sort of promising to parties in terms of where I stand. But um, you know, ignoring some of the um, the obvious ones and the cliches. You know, I like businesses, not even actually the businesses that have to be wildly successful. The businesses that are willing to experiment um, with different techniques and willing to accept the new world early. So. Something like uh, you know nutmeg for financial services in the UK, you know, it's been around now for a while. You know, an attempt to try and deliver financial services to the kind of mass affluent, you know, in a way that it's never been done before, and they're willing to take on um, sort of you know difficult industries, industries which were never customer focused. And the guy around nutmeg gave a really interesting talk. Um, this is again going back to sort of, you know years now. Always best to see sort of these these things in. Um, in, uh, in retrospect, you know, talking about how eventually um, fund managers, asset managers would have to give away their advice for free. Right? And, you know, he said, look, the thing that we, the only thing we get paid for at the moment is eventually the thing we're going to have to give away for free. And he's, I mean, you know, and that's, that's the kind of trend we're seeing. And, you know, yes, there'll always be a, you know, sort of a uber wealthy, the high net worth individuals who will pay for that advice. But actually, for the most part, that's, that's going to work for free. And what people are looking for is more that kind of partnership. And a kind of mass level where you're able to use data and use kind of low consider to be quantified self tools to actually allow those individuals to service their own financial needs and take take responsibility for their finances in a way that actually in the West we're quite unfamiliar with. You know, if you go to Asia, they're much more active with their own finance mm-hmm. because they haven't had the kind of the welfare state um, support them from cradle to grave in the sense of the way yeah. more active money managers. So again, it's cultural. But there's loads, loads of brands. I just think doing exceptionally interesting things. I admire experimentation, um, and I admire people who are willing to, um, as I say, ditch, um, ditch old solutions and rethink it. Um, you know, if you take, um, yeah, so maybe that answers your question. Excellent. And, and I guess, you know, um, I think, I, you know, quite a few years ago now, I remember talking to you um, around about, you know, uh, asking you the same question, really, what are the digital trends going forward in the next three years? And I think it was a, um, 
it was quite a few years ago you were talking about bots and, and running call centers and I thought, my God, it really, you know, robots are taking over the world. But actually, you know, um, you know, super bots are managing call centers. So it'd be quite interesting to see what, what the next sort of three years looks like. What, what, what do you see as that kind of technology, again, whether it's customer experience or, or whatever? So what I remember, so hopefully it's all right to the podcast, is that Dave used to be my client. We got to know each other, right? Dave worked for one of the big, yeah. the big, big five sort of um, energy companies. And, and I remember us talking back then about saying about exactly this type of challenge is that for memory, something like, you know, all of the, all of the you know, the, the market was dominated by like sort of five big energy companies and everyone else was tiny, tiny, tiny. It was like, you know, 90% of the business was done amongst mm. five energy companies. And the government had put a lot of work into this over recent years to try and get that switching up. When you look at the numbers who were traditionally switching, something like 14% of the population yeah. the only never switched. The other, whatever it was, 86%, Never change their provider. People like me, I barely know who my provider is, right? And you know, let mm. alone I did, I'd switch and get two pound off here. It's just not the way I am, right? So, and, and the vast majority of people weren't. So, actually, what you've had is this kind of red ocean strategy of everyone throwing a lot of marketing dollars going after the same sort of, you know, 14% or whatever it was of, of people. But fundamentally, what they missed was that people don't, as I said, you know, they, I would argue, that actually many of these energy companies fell in love with the solution, not the problem. You know, people don't want an energy company. What I want is you know, energy in my home, and I want a more intelligent home. So you see this kind of move towards you kind know, of home automation and smart homes that that have, that have really taken over this idea of sort of utilities. Um, in the same way as you know, apps or the people didn't really want a phone. A phone is just a small app now on this mini computer I turn on. It's actually not a differentiating app. It's just a functional utility. You know, it's all this other stuff that actually makes me to choose which phone I want. Yeah. Well, sort of thing here with you know, yes, there is this kind of commodity which I purchase, and it may move up and down, and those switches, price conscious, will still have that. But actually, really, what people now want are they want to buy into an ecosystem of home automation. Um, and I think that actually home automation will still be another trend. And um, but to your point, I think that was a that was something that's been embraced over recent years. Um. I think uh, a couple of things in terms of other trends. Uh, one is most obviously because front of mind in what I do, the role of emerging economies. You know, it's far easier for certain emerging economies to jump over more, more uh, sort of the first movers in terms of technology. You know, somewhere like India, I just think India is just an incredible country that um, it's a real joy of mine. We've got like four or five offices around, around India and you know, Normal times, I travel there sort of once a month or something and spend some time with those guys. I've got some Indian clients. To me, the Indian market will, in 10 years, be you know, the size of you, right? let's say. I mean, it's, it's potentially yeah, crazy. It's yeah. you know, um, they are, you know, they're a democracy, they're English-speaking, they're highly value education, um, incredible work ethic. They yeah. haven't... Mm themselves off in terms of this problem, they're very inclusive. It's just it's just an incredible country. And you know, you see the kind of the, they've got a, a massive, you know, whenever someone like China has a challenge with demographics because of the one child policy for so many years, they're quite top heavy in terms of you know an older generation. I mean, India's the reverse, you know, no demographic yeah. it's incredible, incredible potential. Um, and you know, somewhere like India can also jump over as happened with other technologies. They are 
overwhelmingly mobile in the truest sense of the word, right? They are, you know, all have mobile phones, they're, you know, all doing mobile banking, you know, they and so because they don't have the inertia um, that, that we have here, you guys in the UK have, you know, they they um, they're able to move quite quicker. And I think that we see a lot of a lot of the new whatever it might be, you know, fintech or innovations, you know, much are adopted much better. You know, in, mm. in some emerging economies, like the rise of super apps. You know, we're building a great super app here for the Middle East to sort of mirror uh, for one of our banking clients in the same way as you know, super apps like Grab or something, and sort of you know, Singapore lays back. I mean, that kind of stuff is just phenomenal and really leading the way. Um, so I think emerging economies will be a thing. Uh, my other, if I had to, if I had to better get bet short and I had to bet against an industry, I think the industry in most need of um, change is retail, consumer retail. So yeah, the question I pose to, to any retailer out there, especially in the middle of COVID, when probably they've got a lot of staff and furlough, you know, yeah. Yeah. There, yeah. 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 Sure. Imagine, is that if you were to reinvent the economy now, I, I, the question I have for you is, would you invent retail the way it is? Right? And I would argue, because I would argue that in an industrial economy, where, where all of the sort of the benefit, everyone focuses on the production of a product. What, what is the kind of, the, kind of the, the missing gap between the customer and the, the, the producer is you just need some geographic location close to their home that they can go on the high street and shop for, right? And you know, that is effectively what retail is. Right? You know, you, you essentially say, I'm going to take, you know, if you look at, Henry Ford said, you know, you can have any color car you want as long as it's black, right? He was focused on production and efficiency of production. He wasn't focused on what the consumer wants. And, you know, automotive, they didn't sell it. They just, they sold it to four ports. So four ports, the retailer sold them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, music, um, you know, EMI or whatever it might be, they, they didn't sell the records. They, you know, sold them to HMV and HMV sold them. Now they're going direct, direct to market. Because of the role yeah. of data, everyone wants to understand the customer and wants to have that direct relationship with the customer. You know, and now, you know, car manufacturers, you know, you no longer really, when you buy a car, you're more, all the new interesting models are sort of subscription straight from the, the automotive, you know. So if you, if you were to really want to fall in love with the problem and not the solution, you know, what is it, what is it the retail does, right? I mean, like, what is it, when, in a world in which people are now incredibly, much more comfortable with e-commerce, they are, you know, actually prefer it, the high, they don't want to go to the high streets, not just because of COVID, but just people yeah, yeah. like, what is it that retail does? And much like the kind of the silly business book, which I still love around, you know, someone moving my cheese, you know, you can sit around crying about it if you want, but fundamentally, people don't want to go to shops anymore, right? I mean, not as a yeah. functional utility anyway. So, okay, yeah. they don't want to come, if they're not forced to be here because they simply can't get these products anywhere else. Well, we do, because there's still fundamental human needs out there. We've still got geography, we've still got different things, we've still many of them have brands. You know, there will probably be a place for some kind of you know retail, some sort of niche. But well, what is it? Mm-hmm. They, not going to what I think there's actual solutions, but you know, fundamentally, you've got to um, you know fall in love with the problem, and you know, consumers need to buy stuff. Right? So you know, and they also want experiences, and there's a whole range of other things they want to do with their life. And, you, know, you have the opportunity to provide that, but retail in pick your date 10 years 20 years yep. if you're profitable it doesn't look anything like retail 20 no. years right? so yeah that would be yeah. the real trend and i think we'll see a proliferation of different models and a diversification and i think that's grand 
But any kind of retailer out there thinking, you know, the glory days of return, or it's just a case of we need to tax Amazon a bit more, although we need to tax Amazon a bit more. But I mean, like, you know, that's, you know, you can't, you're not look, you shouldn't be looking to rent through government. You should accept that the world has changed and you should identify a new fundamental human need that you can solve in an imaginative and differentiating way. Uh, uh, so it's a really good. I, I like uh, certainly, you know, analogy. I think uh, of uh, you know, of, of certainly putting in you know, kind of you know, properties or places to go when consumers don't actually need to go there, and they're purchasing mm -hmm. online or doing their whole experience. But it'll be quite interesting what I guess in your world that whole experience is in the future for retail. But. But uh, George, I just want—I uh, think we're—I think we're pretty much done on the podcast. I think you've been amazing. I think thank you for being the first uh, guest on our business. I guess our planning reset podcast. Um, you've, you've been really insightful in some of the stuff as always. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you for your time. I guess we have got to finish off though. One final question: You're doing the I London know. Marathon yeah. in October, aren't you? I am. So uh, how's that going? Pro pro provided with a low date, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I was due to do it. I did. Um, I was due to do it in April, I think it was, but they cancelled through to October. And I really hope to um, to be able to get there. And so I've got this new, as you can probably get. Like I love conceptual frameworks. So I've got this new way of training because I've been doing um, well some um, half Ironman stuff recently. And I've been really struggling. I've been training harder and it hasn't improved my time. So there's a whole new thing about zone. Well, new it is, but there's this thing about zone two training. There's this great book, right. 82 by Fitzgerald, and this whole idea that actually, at some fundamental level, a mistake most people make, especially middle-aged cliches like me who want to take up marathon running and, and, and triathlons, is, you know, they try, you know, you've got two systems, right? You've got an anaerobic and you've got an aerobic. You've got aerobic, which means yeah. that you can get enough oxygen around your body to sustain that pace, so you can, you can carry a run forever if you like at that pace. And you've got anaerobic, which is where you accrue oxygen debt, effectively. So you start breathing heavily, your heart starts and the, what, this, what the kind of theory is, is to say, well, look, you know, most people, what they do is they try and go out, these kind of weekend warriors like myself, they go out as hard as they can, you know, um, and... What, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and they go as hard as they can in the anaerobic system. They never really, that's not the bit we should be training. What you need to train is your aerobic. What you need to do is be able to get your heart, heart so, you know, rather than go at like, 160, um, you know, uh, beats per, uh, per minute. Mm -hmm. You're not going to do that for four hours, right? You, you're just going to collapse, right? And um, what you need to be able to do is to run at a high speed, but at a lower heart rate. So what you need to do mm -hmm. is keep your um, your heart rate, your training in this lower zone, and then it, and then over time, your what the kind of speed you can run will increase whilst your heart rate remains the same, so it becomes a sustainable. But the challenge with that is. Is it's incredibly frustrating because what you do is you find yourself walking to begin with as much as you do running, but your heart rate immediately shoots up because yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. Right? So you know, so at the moment I'm going through this process of you know getting out my door, especially when it's like 40 degrees outside here in the middle, of the getting out my door, running for like two minutes, walking for a minute, running for two. It's, it's anyway. So I have faith in this. <laughs> It's going to work out. Well, I'll probably still end up with like seven hours. So what you're trying to say, George, is that you're going to be walking the London Marathon. <laughs> Just as the excuse. I'm in the zone training. Yeah. Well, I'll be walking yeah. the plan, Dave. Not because not I can't do it, you know? <laughs> yeah. And we'll, we'll need to check in with you, George, in three months from now. And, uh, yeah. You can tell us how that's going, you know? <laughs> 
Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see how it's going. I'm sure that uh, I'll have pulled a hammy or something by then, but uh, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, uh, well, that you know, concludes our first ever podcast uh, on Planning Reset. I'd like to thank you, George. Really appreciate your time. Um, it's been really insightful, and um, we, we'd definitely like to do it again sometime. Um, and, 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 you know, your insights are, are you know, extremely, uh, well, insightful, I guess. But, um, yeah, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Okay. And good luck, guys, with uh, P3MO. It looks like a really interesting proposition, so I'll, uh, I'll look forward to hearing all about it.